Well, good morning. I think I'm on. Great. Um, good morning. My name's David Dupuy. I'm one of the elders here at City Reform Church, and I have the privilege of <clears throat> bringing God's word to us here today. Uh, Pastor Chris will be back uh, next week after um, two well-deserved uh, weeks of break. Uh, what that means, at the very least, is you know, one more week without any um, book or movie endings being ruined for you. So if there's uh, any particular book that you're very into, a cliffhanger or a movie, I'd suggest you um, finish that this week, because Chris will be back at it next week. Um, our text today is from Psalm 46. Let's go ahead and read that. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought the desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you open the eyes of our heart to receive your word? Give us a vision for life with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, a few years back, um, Scotland's, I think it was the Mountain Safety Department, uh, issued an advisory following uh, a successful mountain rescue operation. The groups of hikers that were saved uh, had become disoriented uh, when a low, um, dense fog rolled in. Needing to orient themselves, they relied on their navigational instrument, the trusty compass. However, the compass directed them east instead of the westward direction that they needed to go, and they became lost and required rescue. The error resulted from reversed polarity. For those of you who have known me, I have no business mentioning that phrase. I barely understand what it means, except that it's often caused by storing um, a compass in a pocket with uh, a cell phone or something else that has a magnetic force. The navigational instrument that the hikers relied upon no longer worked, and they required rescue. Just as hikers and mountaineers require reliable navigation in the fog, we too require reliable navigation when life gets disorienting. If the anxiety and depression statistics today are any, are any indicator, I think it's safe to say that clouds have rolled in. I don't know whether it's the effects of COVID or the overall breakneck um, speed at which life seems to be changing around us. But many of us today feel disoriented. Perhaps you do this morning. We need our bearings. And many of the navigational systems that we have relied on in the past don't seem to be working. We desperately need a vision to help orient ourselves. Psalm 46 
is a navigational instrument. It points us in the direction of life with God. My prayer this morning is that we would journey with the psalmist to find the bearings that we so desperately seek. So turning to our text, um, we see that mountains are at the center of the psalmist's imagination. Mountain imagery plays a very prominent role throughout scripture, um, often symbolizes places of stability, peace, and security. Towering above creation, mountains are also a place the prophets went to to gain vision. It is at the top of the mountain, after all, um, where the Lord gave his people a vision for how to live in the form of the law and the covenant. It is also at the top of the mountain where the Lord gave Moses a vision of all the land that he would give him, as we see in the end of Deuteronomy. Now, the concept of vision is more than possessing the perception of sight. It is what gives us a future orientation. Orienting ourselves towards the future is an important aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. Think about it. Virtually no other creature um, has the ability to um, transcend the immediate moment, has foresight. But God, the visionary, created life according to a well-ordered plan that he executed. And as the crown jewel of his creation, we were made in his image and bestowed with vision, the capacity to see and work towards a future reality. God did not speak into existence a perfect and complete creation. It was created good, with potential. Even before sin entered the world, human image bearers were intended to steward and perfect this good creation, to take it from something good into an even better future state. We see an example, example of this when God entrusted Adam and Eve to name the animals. God's creation was good, but it was not yet complete. The completion would require human vision. Vision is what helps us order our lives. If mountains, therefore, are a symbol for gaining vision in scripture, then we seek out mountaintops for every single area of our lives. A vision for our family, a vision for our careers, a vision for our extracurriculars. Most organizations today have a vision statement. We here at CRC have a vision statement. And as Alan alluded to, we're also currently going through a strategic planning process, which will hopefully give us a vision for where the church might be going over the next several years. Simply put, to be made in the image of God is to possess vision. I think it's the importance of vision which helps explain why the imagery of mountains moving into the heart of the sea is so terrifying in this text. As land-dwelling people, the Israelites feared the power and uncontrollable nature of the sea. Sea in scripture often symbolize chaos. On the third day of creation, God separated the land from the sea. So the imagery here of the sea swallowing up the mountains and the earth giving way is a terrifying picture of God's created order unraveling. Order and meaning are threatened to be swallowed up by the seas of chaos and uncertainty. The likely context of Psalm 46 is an enemy army encircling the city of Jerusalem. The psalmist is likely peering outside the walls of the city to face an existential threat to his stability. When the sea swallows up the mountains, one of the first things to go is our vision. 
This loss of vision can be destabilizing and disorienting. Perhaps you've experienced this before. Perhaps you're experiencing it now. A moment when the rug seems to get pulled out from you suddenly. The sudden loss of a loved one, an unexpected medical diagnosis, the collapse of a marriage or a friendship. Even if your life thus far has been shielded from such tragedy, I think we all experience the disorienting impact of COVID. During COVID, it was very difficult to sustain any kind of vision. Vision for family, career, friendship, church. Virtually everything seemed uncertain and unstable. It was as if a dense fog had enveloped our lives, allowing us to barely see our own hand right in front of our face. The disorienting seas of life swallow up our vision. If that's the case, how is it then that the psalmist can say in verse 2 that even though the, that he will not fear, though the earth gives way? The reason, I think, can be found in the distinction that he makes between mountains and refuge. Notice how the psalmist opens by saying, God is our refuge. A refuge in scripture is a place of ultimate protection and unshakable strength. The variation of the word refuge, um, as translated fortress in verses 7 and 11 in our text, implies inaccessible height. A refuge is a mountain above all mountains. If mountains are where we go to get vision for the different areas of our lives, a refuge or fortress is where we go for ultimate meaning and protection from the sea. And according to scripture, there is only one refuge that will provide unshakable security and meaning. Friends, ask yourself this question. What is the refuge of my life? Another way to get at this question is by examining our horizons. For every one of our visions has a corresponding horizon. Uh, my wife, Allison, can attest to the fact that uh, I was a dumb jock uh, growing up. And growing up, my dominant horizon was sports. It was, there was a middle school team to make. Then there was a high school team to make. Then there was a college team to make. But when all that was over, I remember going through an intense period of disorientation. It was as, as if my horizon had collapsed in on me. I think there are, we go through this at various phases in our lives. But what is a dominant horizon in your life right now? How far does it extend? If your horizon only extends as far as your next promotion, then career may be a refuge. If your horizon only extends as far as your kids going to college, then family may be a refuge. If your horizon only extends as far as retirement, then perhaps comfort may be your refuge. If your horizon only extends as far as November 8th, then perhaps politics or your spe specific political party may be your refuge. Again, none of these are bad in themselves, and it's good to have vision in all areas of our lives. However, whether it's through loss, disappointment, or even achievement, all these things will eventually get swallowed up. If our refuge is in anything other than God, we will lose all orientation. The reason the psalmist does not lose orientation is because the earthly city of Jerusalem is not his refuge. To be sure, it is extremely important to him. He loves the city. He has a vision for it. The potential of losing it 
causes intense inner turmoil. However, he is not completely disoriented, for his refuge is in God alone. And in God, he is given a vision that the sea of life can never touch. Let's turn now to what that vision is. Verse 4 marks an abrupt transition in the imagery. We go from waters roaring and foaming and mountains trembling in verse 3 to this in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Commentators point out the dual nature of this vision. On the one hand, it most certainly refers to, uh, is most certainly is a vision of the earthly city of Jerusalem being uh, rescued from its enemies. The river refers to a fresh water stream that flowed through the city at that time. God was in the midst of the city, in the temple. And yet, at the same time, it is impossible not to see another layer behind the earthly Jerusalem. The psalmist is envisioning the Jerusalem to come, a vision that is more clearly spelled out in Revelation chapter 22. Here's just an excerpt from um, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The psalmist's vision is not of an immaterial future that our souls will float off to when we die. It is a vision of a material present and a material future. However, central to the vision of the present and future material world is the presence of God. God is in her midst. That is because, as one scholar puts it, the language of heaven speaks to God's special presence amidst creation. For heaven is a created realm, permeated with and defined by his very presence and rule. There's a tension in this dual vision of the material, between the material and the spiritual, the present and the future. I think our natural tendency is to want to reduce that tension um, by either overemphasizing the material or the spiritual components. Our reform tradition um, rightly pushes back on an overly spiritualized understanding of heaven. We have a high view of the material order because we believe God will not abandon that which he created good. A heavenly vision must, therefore, include the material. However, at the same time, our tradition can err on the other side. By rightly stressing the importance of the goodness of creation, we can run the risk of reducing the heavenly vision to the material here and now. I think it's possible to do this both by knowing a lot about God and doing a lot for God. We can construct a framework for thinking about God and the world from which, uh, thinking about God in the world from which then we go out and start doing things for God and doing things for the world. And as a result, our heads and hands are very active, but we leave our hearts behind. And when we do this, we settle for a much narrower horizon than God intends. That is because the personal presence of God is not central to our vision. I want to, um, I want to read an excerpt to you. We can hold high admiration and deep respect for our nation, for nature, for beauty, for art, 
for the suffering of others, even for humanity itself. We can have a love for what is honest and pure, for what is good, for our heritage, our theology, our creeds. But when the psalmist says, I love God, he implies something different from deep admiration and respect. What he is talking about is something intimate and personal. When we know God Almighty is a presence on the path of our lives, when we have entered into a personal, particular relationship with him, then and only then does he become our Father in heaven. Now be honest, does the personal intimacy language make you squirm at all? I think uh, sometimes in our tradition we can shy away from such language, writing it off as uh, me and Jesus spirituality that can, can be problematic. But this is not a e modern evangelical writer that I quoted. It's in fact Abraham Kuyper. For those of you who are not familiar with Kuyper, he was a Dutch theologian and statesman. Kuyper's most famous phrase, that there is no square inch, that uh, Christ does not call out mine, uh, is, is very uh, familiar and popular. Kuyper's theology has fueled the imaginations of many in this room, myself included, and given us a framework for how to engage the world. And Kuyper didn't just write theology in his study. He lived it out as prime minister of the Netherlands. I think it's quite safe to say, then, that Kuyper's head and hands were very busy throughout his life. But when you read his meditations, it becomes very clear. The starting point for Kuyper was the heart. That is because God was his refuge. The sustaining vision of his life was personal intimacy with God. Everything else flowed out of that. What resulted for Kuiper was a robust vision, a heavenly horizon full of tantalizing meaning for the here and now. To grow in intimacy with God is to grow in love of our neighbor. To grow in intimacy with God is to grow in love of his good creation. To enjoy good gifts with overflowing thanksgiving. Kuiper fiercely defended the importance of the here and now against spiritual escapism. He championed the inherent goodness of God's creation and its continuation in the new heavens and new earth. But he also properly oriented these things. Again, listen to another one of his meditations. And while it's forever true that in Christ we will receive eternal life, we should remember that the blessed accommodations of heaven are only furniture. The glories of eternity are not pearly gates or streets of gold. Glory for real believers is in knowing God face to face and having that intimate fellowship. Kuiper understands created goods to be furniture compared to the intimate fellowship with God. Furniture is good in itself. The skill to, to create it brings about joy for the craftsman, but the furniture is a means, it is not an end. Its purpose is to fill a room and facilitate relationship. If you craft a beautiful chair for your spouse, the purpose is not to gaze upon the chair. You certainly will take pride in it, but it is not the end. Rather, it is a means for you to enjoy your spouse. Friends, intimacy with God is the definitive vision for our lives. It is the vision that orders and gives meaning to all other visions and there is nothing that can shake it, not even suffering or periods of disorientation. In fact, it is often when we are disoriented that he draws nearest to us. Have you ever uh, hiked up a mountain uh, and stopped to admire uh, the views along the way? At each stop, there's a different horizon, 
Each view is beautiful in its own right. However, it is at the top of the mountain where the view is most spectacular. The truth is that too often we settle for a stop along the way. Gripped by the view, we sit down on the bench, certain that there can be no better horizon out there. But God is calling us to a much bigger vision, a view that soars above the ones we so easily settle for. And he will use the clouds that roll into our lives to move us off our comfortable park bench and further up the mountain, to himself, our refuge, and our strength. How can we be certain that God is moving towards us in these times? We must look to Jesus. For in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt among us bodily. And Jesus had a vision for his time here on earth. As Paul writes, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. What was that joy? It was nothing short of vision of fellowship and communion. His vision was to draw near to you, to draw near to me. And to do so, he had to absorb the chaotic waves of sin that separate us from God. The waves of sin in our human hearts came crashing down upon him on the cross. He became utterly and completely disoriented. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the most desperate, the most hopeless, and the loneliest moment in the history of the world. For the one who was God and knew God was separated from God. There was no horizon, just darkness. Friends, what this means is that Jesus can relate to our feelings of hopelessness, despair, and disorientation. Take heart if you are feeling that now. He became completely disoriented so that we would not have to. He lost his, vis his vision so that we could gain ours. For something miraculous happened on the third day. We believe this is true, not a nursery rhyme. After descending to the depths, he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death. Whereas the sea in Psalm 46 threatens to undo the order instituted on the third day of creation, Jesus on the third day calmed the seas of chaos once and for all. He declared, be still. By doing so, he opened a way for us through faith in him to draw near to the Father. And he is in our midst right now, for he has poured his spirit into our hearts through faith. He has drawn near to us and promises to be present every day of our lives. Friends, spend time in the word meditating on God. The Bible gives us the bearings we need for it tells us the truth we need to hear both about ourselves and God. We ourselves never have the full picture. You may have seen this, but um, uh, this past week, Bono, the lead singer of YouTube, uh, U2, uh, gave an interview on NPR. Much of it was about his faith, and he had this quote, which I loved. He said, the scriptures remain a plumb line to gauge how crooked the wall of my ego has become. The scriptures remain a plumb line to gauge how crooked the wall of my ego has become. Our pride and ego are magnetic forces that can overpower our compasses. 
We need the scriptures to help orient us towards the way home. Along the journey, God is transforming us into the image of Christ in preparation for the glorious day when we will see him face to face. There truly is no greater vision than this, for there is no greater love. Let's play. Father, would you expand our horizons this morning? Open our hearts um, to the truth of the gospel that we might catch a glorious glimpse of life with you. We thank you that you promised to stay with us during our pilgrimage here and that you steadfastly pursue us and you take us up the mountain and that one day we will see you face to face. We will reign with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, give us a glimpse of this, Lord, we pray. Amen.